Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. Today for the show, we are going to discuss a recent article that was published September, which is, we're still in September, but just in case you're listening to the show later on, it's September of 2015. And the article is titled The Myth of the Returned Foreign Fighter. And it was published in Strategy Bridges Medium Outlet, and the author is Colin Hunt. I'm very happy to have Colin on the show here today to talk about this. So welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me on. So for our listeners, I will give you a little background on Colin. Colin works as a counterterrorism analyst and is an MA candidate at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. His area of expertise includes threat finance, jihadist movements in North Africa, and the politics of the Levant. So he has a very wide background in Middle East and um, counterterrorism. So we're so excited to have you on, Colin. Why don't we start off with having you explain what a foreign fighter is to listeners that might not have a huge background in counterterrorism or terrorism studies or even what's going on right now in Syria and Iraq? So a foreign fighter is basically someone who decides to go leave their homeland to fight overseas. And in this case, it's to go fight in the Syrian civil war in a jihadist movement. When I was looking at this article, I know you've had Philip Smythe on here and he'll go on about how people mistake foreign fighters as being Sunni foreign fighters. But I was specifically looking at the Sunni side of things, both from Jabhat al-Nusra and the ISIL side. But we're seeing more outreach than we've seen in the past from ISIL, especially them in particular with Dabak and their social media outreach to draw people who might be disaffected with their homelands or feel alienated to bolster the caliphate in both their fight against the Assad regime and also to create a permanent presence in Syria and northern Iraq. Do you by any chance have an idea of how many foreign fighters we've seen so far go to the Levant to be involved in this conflict? That's a bit of a tricky question because it the number can range anywhere from 20,000 to 30,000 depending on the estimates you're looking at. And the last I've seen, there's at least 20,000 in the Islamic State itself. I tend to think 30,000, that estimate might be a little bit on the high side. But it is true that Syria has already eclipsed Afghanistan in terms of the jihadist draw in less than half the time of the conflict going on. And when I say Afghanistan, I mean the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s. Obviously, outreach to Muslim communities across the world who might be interested in getting involved in this conflict has gotten significantly better with the advent of the Internet, social media, and also Syria is far more accessible than Afghanistan ever was because the terrain's just so unforgiving over there. But it definitely poses a threat for foreign fighters going over there and leaving their homelands, at least in the sense of the regional security in Syria. And the true number is difficult to know because it's difficult to tell the purposes that someone's going over there for. For every person who may post on their social media account, that they're supporting the caliphate, that they're leaving to go fight Assad or to go fight the, the Shia, then you have those who won't say why they're going. And then intelligence services need to rely on 
cues that they're leaving behind. Now, FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, has published a report, I believe it was in January or February of this year, that outlined some key indicators for people leaving to become foreign fighters. That would be, you know, Western Union transfers over to the Turkish-Syrian border, people funding themselves with um, low-value ATM withdrawals on the Turkish-Syrian border. But we're also seeing that pattern from people who are going over there to help with refugees or for aid purposes who may need to smuggle themselves into Syria because that border is so tightly controlled. It's really a best guess of why someone's going over there. And what we're seeing is erring a lot more on the side of caution. So that's where I think a lot of the higher numbers like 30,000 are coming in. I mean, that's one of the issues here, as you just pointed out. It's really hard to tell who is going to Syria for fighting or humanitarian aid on the borders and so forth. So it's, it's not as easy to tag someone right away as, oh, yes, they're going to fight the jihad in Syria. Right. And I think that's where a lot of the, the non-public information comes in, because with what we've seen in the past of people going to fight abroad and then coming back, which was more far more the Al-Qaeda model, which is what the, the security services in the West are tending to operate on, and we'll get into a little later, I'm sure, why I don't think that's the best model for dealing with the ISIL threat. But we're having to treat everyone with a little bit of suspicion who's going over there who might meet that criteria. And on this note, what countries are we seeing as, I guess we could call them main players of foreign fighters? So young people that are leaving their country, whether it's in Europe or Middle Eastern countries, to go to Syria. What countries stand out as the biggest provider of foreign fighters to this battle? The biggest single supplier of foreign fighters to the Syrian jihad at the moment, from the last I saw, was Tunisia. That was in a Sufan group report in summer of 2014, I believe, but the numbers were so staggeringly far above all the other countries' contributions that I would be tempted to say that no other country has come close to eclipsing that. They even have their own specific media outlet directed at Tunisians. It's called Afrikia Media, which is to draw Tunisians over to Syria. And there was even a meeting of jihadist groups in Libya about how to deal with integrating those returnees back into the North African theater for jihad. But that's not necessarily what we're seeing in the West because some of those North African countries don't have the intelligence capacity and the security services that would allow them to both know who's going over to Syria because the borders are so porous, especially with the Libyan situation deteriorating right now, that they wouldn't be able to necessarily stop anyone coming back, whereas the Western security intelligence services have an idea of who's going there. They might not know why, but they're certainly able to monitor them and apply a lot more scrutiny when they come back home. And I think looking at the title of your article, uh, The Myth of the Returned Foreign Fighter, which is a fantastic name because there is this huge scare tactic going on of what are these young people, if they return home, what are they going to do? And so moving 
on to more of the topic of your article, let's focus on the idea of the returnee. And once again, for listeners that might not know, basically describe what the returnee or what a returnee, pardon me, is. Returnee really describes a foreign fighter who has for some reason or another made the decision to return back to their homeland, to return back to where they departed from when they made the decision to become a foreign fighter. While it could be at the behest of the group, which is what we saw with a plot to send French passport holding uh, terrorist fighters back to France, it could also be disillusionment. We've certainly seen a fair number of individuals who've fled the caliphate or who have expressed some sort of disillusionment with its ideals from within at great personal risk to themselves. But I don't think anybody has kept an accurate track of exactly what the proportion of people leaving the caliphate is, which with the refugee situation right now is absolutely staggering for those who are actually foreign fighters. Now, some of that deals with the psychology of a foreign fighter of them being less likely to leave than someone who might be just joining ISIL as a Syrian because it can provide best for their security and best for their needs. And looking at this further, we see in a lot of European countries and here in the States, once again, this idea of what if, what if someone comes back, what are they going to do? Do we see this worry in countries like Tunisia or other Middle Eastern nations that have a lot of young people that have gone to Syria? Especially in Tunisia these days, we're seeing a lot of concern and Jordan also is on a very high level of alert just because they're in such close proximity to that. It's a very tense situation for the security services along the Jordanian-Syrian border up near Erbid, and it seems like it's almost every other month that you're hearing reports of raids or crackdowns on Salafists and other radical Islamic mobilizers up there because of the fear that they may contribute to foreign fighters going to Syria and then returning back to Jordan. With Tunisia, it's definitely been a problem because of the Bardo Museum attacks, because of the attacks on the tourist beaches, and also because there is, it's a minority, but it's still a very noticeable undercurrent within Tunisian youth of this embrace of radical Islam as possibly the salvation of their issues, because that country still is experiencing high unemployment rates the political process, though it's getting better, still leaves quite a bit to be desired, especially with the implementation of yet another state of emergency there. And the security presence there has mounted. So we're seeing an increase in unrest in Tunisia as well. So I would have to say that they would be worried about individuals returning there. And I know you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago that it is quite hard to tell how many people have returned back from fighting in Syria to their home countries. But there have been some cases that have been highlighted in media, say in like the United Kingdom, for instance, France as well. What are we looking at when we have these young people that do come back and most of the time are intercepted at borders or airports? What do the recent cases look like? Well, Andrew Zamet's blog has a pretty good compilation of some of these. And as far as those who have been arrested with malevolent intent, it's not as many as you'd expect with both how hyped the returnee threat is and 
how many people have traveled to Syria and Iraq to fight. Since 2013, there have been 11 arrests that he's cataloged of individuals or groups of individuals. I think the number's around 25 foreign fighters who've returned with suspected intent to carry out attacks. But if you're considering those that have the real material ability to carry out attacks that have actually deserved the name plot, the number of these legitimate plots is closer to half that. I counted about five or six, and those would be in Kosovo, Belgium, and France. As you mentioned, there is a possible one in the UK, but Scotland Yard has been very tight hold about releasing information on that. If and when that appears before the courts, I'd be very interested in reading about that, not only to see what the plot was, but also to read about how the British authorities intercepted these individuals and identified them. But in all of those cases, the individuals were very well known to the authorities beforehand and were under some very heavy surveillance from the police and security services. They weren't fooling anyone, especially in the the Belgium shootout. They were well known beforehand, and even though they had armament in their house for the purposes of carrying out an attack, they were known and the police were able to go in and prevent those attacks from happening. I think that Europe has become especially vigilant in the wake of its returnees possibility because France has contributed quite a few out of the European community. So the the intelligence sharing within the EU on this is very strong. And on that point, how realistic is this worry of an attack from a returnee in their home country? I mean, this idea of, as you said, a malevolent intent I mean, with the increased watch of individuals, uh, like as you said, authorities are watching these young people. They know about them even before they enter their home country borders. So how realistic is this idea of the threat? I don't tend to think that it's very realistic. And if you look at um, Thomas Heckhammer had a great article, which I drew on a lot for the article I wrote for the Strategy Bridge, in Perspectives on Terrorism recently, where he outlined the category of plots that were with an ISIS nexus recently. And he broke them down into influenced, it was uh, what we'd call a homegrown violent extremist, which would be someone who's looking at material on the internet but doesn't necessarily have direct contact with ISIL influencers, someone who has had contact with them, like the individuals who attack the Dra Muhammad cartoon competition, or you have the returnee threat. And by far the returnee threat was the lowest one of that that had categorized. The lower two categories of individuals who had never traveled to Syria and Iraq carrying out attacks in their homeland without ever leaving it were far higher. And I think that's something that Concentrating on the returnee threat instead of those risks taking your eye off the ball is something that's a higher probability of happening since those individuals are less known and have a lower profile to the security services. And that's a great point, and I really want to get back to that a little bit later in the talk. But first of all, I want to pull it more towards the side of Syria and the Islamic State, ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call it. So for a returnee to return, they have to actually leave the Islamic State. 
how easy or hard is that for an individual that might not want to be there anymore because it wasn't what they thought they were signing up for or some other scenario? It's not easy at the moment. They have to face the measures that ISIL, ISIS. I know I would like to apologize now for jumping back and forth between acronyms. It's just one of the, the quirks of the field, I guess. When Yeah, that's perfectly fine. I do the same thing all the time. <laughs> but they have to face the measures that um, ISIS uses to ensure loyalty and adherence, which in many ways, ISIS has a bit of an easier time convincing foreign fighters to stay because they've forsaken their homelands and their original identity to become a foreign fighter. There is really no way back for them mentally even though they left because they felt a sense of ostracization from the society that they're living in, leaving to become a foreign fighter is a conscious decision to almost self-ostracize and take it to its extreme. But for those who want to leave, such as uh, the story yesterday that did really amuse me was the British foreign fighter who was complaining about hygiene and cleanliness on the battlefield. Well, that's not necessarily going to be a very clean environment that he stepped into normally. But for those who want to leave, ISIS is doing a lot of things you'd expect to see in a paranoid and closed society. It monitors and controls its residents as far as their transit in and out of the territory. And foreign fighters have to get almost permission slips. In some instances, we've seen even wounded fighters who need to leave the territory to get higher quality medical treatment needing to get it signed off on first. Recruits are at a premium, especially with some of those costly battlefield losses that we've seen. And ISIS has instead resorted to intimidation and in rare instances execution to send a message to its foreign fighters and to its domestic subjects to stay in line. And I think this is really underscored by the recent issue of Dabik which just came out, and it's completely focused on drawing people into the caliphate. Beforehand, Dabik, which for listeners who may be unfamiliar, is ISIS's English-language magazine. Its previous issues this year had been focused on praising individuals who were those homegrown violent extremist types and urging further attacks in their homeland because those are low-cost but high-reward type attacks for ISIS. But now that they're creating a call for foreign fighters so heavily and devoting an entire issue of their magazine to it, it underscores the fact that they're having some personnel issues. What type of response do you think that this recent recent issue will gain with calling in foreign fighters? Do you think it will be successful? I think it's too early to tell right now. I think that the ideology that they've had and the way they've been promoting it has been very successful so far, especially since there hasn't been an effective counter-messaging strategy from the West yet. But with what we're seeing about more people defecting and complaints about what battlefield life is like and news of losses mounting in a very effective YPG campaign in almost constant U.S. air raids, and now they're drawing in Britain, France. The coalition is growing. I'm not sure that it's going to have as much appeal to go over to Syria and Iraq when the lifespan of a foreign fighter there may be significantly decreased. 
as a preventative measure from foreign fighters leaving the Islamic State, do we see fighters getting their passports taken away from them? We see them getting passports taken away, but also in some cases we've seen individuals such as the first American suicide bomber for ISIS appearing on video when he got to the caliphate, shredding his passport, tearing it in two, basically as a sign of commitment that says, I'm here to stay, my new home is this caliphate that ISIS has established. And that right there leads me to believe that there are a number of individuals that have made this choice to go to the caliphate and be a part of it and really have no plans on returning back home whatsoever. Right. And those, I think, are what would be categorized, especially in insurgency studies, as your irreconcilables. They're people who the ideology holds so much sway for that even something like a counter-radicalization program wouldn't be able to necessarily help them. They've made the choice to separate themselves from their homeland, often giving away their possessions before they leave, and accepted this new state, if you will, as, as their own home. They are citizens in their own mind of the caliphate. Looking at the global community and this issue, we've already talked about what ISIS does to prevent foreign fighters from leaving or defecting. What sort of measures are we seeing countries taking to hinder foreign fighters from returning home? And as they potentially see it, potentially being um, a threat to attacks on their own country. We've seen calls in the U.S. and in Australia for foreign fighters to be stripped of their citizenship. And we're also seeing incarceration upon the return in rare cases where we're able to identify a foreign fighter and they don't slip through the, the cracks and then we catch them after they cross the border because they will be caught when they're crossing or right after they've crossed at some point. It's, it's inevitable with some of the technology and monitoring that there is now. But those who are caught when they're coming back have been incarcerated. In almost every country we're looking at, it's illegal to go abroad and join a designated terrorist organization. And in the U.S., at least, our material support clauses are very broad and provide a lot of prosecutorial leeway for individuals who may have gone, but there might not be evidence that they had fought for a foreign terrorist organization. Looking at this, and something that always comes to my mind on this topic is the idea of a young individual that has gone to Syria, but as we talked about earlier, maybe just wants to return home because they're really not happy with the situation there. It's not what they thought it was going to be. They're disillusioned. If they're going to a country that, A, potentially strips them of their citizenship or is going to automatically incarcerate them when they return, couldn't that right there be a red flag in the sense that it potentially creates more alienation or even a backfire on the part of that young individual because he doesn't want to be in the Islamic State, but he also can't return home. And maybe his anger is turned away from the Islamic State and is put towards his home country, which that right there seems to, in my mind, help inflame the idea of anger towards your home country and potentially then 
down the line the idea of putting that anger out in an actual physical act of violence. Exactly. It, it's very counterproductive in the case of individuals who are becoming disillusioned. And especially because, as I mentioned earlier, it is a lot easier to get to Syria. And we're seeing younger and younger demographics going there and younger and younger demographics targeted with their propaganda. The, the chances of what are basically children going to the caliphate and not knowing what they're getting into is increased. And they're, when they're disillusioned and make that choice to return home, it's almost like they're reclaiming a part of their identity that they decided to cast aside when they became a foreign fighter. Because what we see with a lot of foreign fighters is this us versus them mentality before they even leave their home countries. It's believing that the home country is the cause of their woes, that everything can be solved and they can have a purpose and they can be respected and they can have a new identity in life when they go and join this foreign terrorist organization. But if they're reclaiming or attempting to reclaim their home country identity, then it's very counterproductive to say, no, we don't want you. You can't come back. Because not only does that drive their anger at their home country and almost confirm some of those biases they had when they left, it provides room for ISIS or whatever other organization they're joining to almost tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, they don't want you back, but we'll have you. You have a home here you were just misguided. We are actually your true home. We're your real friends. We can demonstrate this. So they can use that to drive anger, and that individual can then become involved in radicalizing others, especially in the area of social media, and radicalizing others who come to the caliphate and may want to carry out attacks in the future. Elaborating on this, I could see where it could potentially become maybe even counterproductive for law enforcement because if you have a young person that has returned, they are going to have information that you might not be able to get via looking at Islamic State through social media and intelligence reports and so forth. They're a huge intelligence asset sometimes, depending on you know their situation, what they were doing there, but they could provide a lot of information. And then also looking at family members of young people that have traveled there. Also, this could be a downfall for law enforcement because if family members know that their young son or daughter that wants to return is going to immediately get incarcerated, they might not be very forthwith with information that could help. Right. And I think what you pointed out about the families is especially something that we see in at home before people leave to become foreign fighters. Because there is such this one-size-fits-all mentality to domestic counterterrorism, we're seeing a reluctance on the part of not just family, but of fellow Muslim community members to turn in these individuals who may be going abroad to fight with jihadist groups when they may be reached through some other fashion to um, reinforce that home country identity, to make them feel like they have a purpose and make them feel like they have belonging. If Family members think, well, all they're going to get at the end of the day is arraigned in court on a material support charge, then they're not going to be very forthcoming with intelligence information. 
that may be of use because not only is that person who's in the U.S. a possible foreign fighter, but they're communicating with others on the Internet. And that, that open source intelligence is of great value because it allows you to see who the radicalizers and who the influencers are on the Internet as well. And that's very important for tracking how these things work. And earlier you touched on the idea of ISIS sympathizers, and I wanted to look at that a bit because you alluded to it, and the idea of someone that relates to the Islamic State, whether it's just via social media or through a group of friends in their community, um, the idea of what also has been called lone wolves. So aren't potentially lone wolves or sympathizers more dangerous than the idea of an actual returnee in the sense that they're less detectable and there's less of a trail, there's no travel trail, etc. So couldn't they potentially be a lot more dangerous than the idea of this return born fighter? Absolutely. And I think that another fact that's often overlooked is that there are likely a lot more sympathizers and lone wolves who haven't made this great commitment to leave to Syria in the United States than there are individuals who've actually gone and left because it's a huge commitment to basically abandon your life and abandon all of your material possessions and take up a gun when you have a very short lifespan in front of you. So the ranks of sympathizers and lone wolves in the U.S. are probably a lot higher than those of individuals who've gone. And just by sheer number, they'd already be more dangerous, but they are less detectable, at least in theory. There is one case that does stand out to me recently where the individual wasn't terribly subtle at all, and that would be Ali Shukri Amin, also known as Amriki Witness, out of Woodbridge, Virginia. And he was constantly advocating for the Islamic State on social media, and he got to the point where he had facilitated another individual going. So that's significant because not only do you have people who are doing attacks who've never been in contact with a member of the caliphate, but you have people who've never physically been to Syria or Iraq acting as facilitators for travel and almost encouraging and egging their friends on to go and serving as this reinforcement network. But those who've actually turned to uh, kinetic attacks, such as the the Sarnayevs and the the Chattanooga shooter, even though those haven't been concretely really linked yet, there's still a lot of debate going on in those. The face of radicalization has changed. The Al-Qaeda model of someone going to Afghanistan or someone from Minnesota going to join Al-Shabaab in Somalia and then coming back to you know, wreak havoc on their homeland is seems to be this dated 24 Hollywood myth now when the actual threat is people who've never been. It's this globalization of the ideology, this globalization of the jihad. And I think that right there signifies the importance of the messaging that ISIS is putting out there. It's very seductive. It's very relatable almost to young people maybe looking for an identity or an adventure or 
a cause, which most young people are doing in any culture, any country. Exactly. And I think if you look at some of the, the great journalistic reporting that's come out on this recently, there was one that was in the New York Times about how ISIS was really grooming and tailoring its messaging to a young girl in the Northwest. And also there was one from an outlet in France that I can't exactly recall, but the the journalist wrote a very good short book about it where she had pretended to be someone who was interested in being a jihadi bride, where it's not this one-size-fits-all messaging or one-size-fits-all approach, which I think is the the downfall of strategic messaging in the West. It's very individualized. The person is targeted because you know they've ex- they've expressed interest in learning about the caliphate, but then they're drawn in further, they're given further contacts, and they're made to feel at home in a way that the strategic messaging in the U.S., which has been quite blundering so far, I'm thinking of the State Department's uh, Think Again, Turn Away Twitter account, it's, it's terrible compared to what ISIS is putting out. Why don't we take this talk now towards rehabilitation programs and countering violent extremism programs, otherwise known as CVE. So we might use that acronym for our listeners. First, describe what these are in a short little blurb. If I had to distill it down to one sentence, it would just be CVE programs are the off-ramp when you're on the path to going to becoming a foreign fighter or committing attacks in your homeland. And what countries are we seeing adopting these programs? Well, four really stand out to me in particular, and that would be Saudi Arabia, Denmark, the UK, and the US. The UK's was particularly controversial because of what the British Muslim community, which already has an exceptionally tenuous relationship with the government, viewed as the UK's government trying to vet its faith leaders. That created a situation where the program had almost failed before it started, because if you fail to achieve buy-in from the community that's supposed to be affected, that's supposed to be, um, that they're supposed to trust you and almost turn over their young to you for rehabilitation when they're at risk, if you're treating their imams as as a guilty before proven innocent or jihadist before proven British, in this case, attitude towards its imams, then they're not going to trust you. But in the U.S., there have been improvements on that. The lessons learned from the U.K.'s PREVENT program have been applied quite well with the, with the program in Montgomery County, Maryland. Its roots in the local Muslim community and really being a true grassroots effort really helped that get buy-in and has created a lot healthier attitudes towards putting the infrastructure in place for a successful CVE program in the future. It's really a fusion between this program, this community system that the Montgomery County Muslim community has in place, uh, the DHS and its local police, which have been educated and to their credit have done a very fine job of community-oriented policing. So I'm really interested to see what results that program has in the future. I mean, ideally, we would have uh, zero people enter or need to enter a CVE program. But unfortunately, with the way that this messaging is, we'll 
probably see some results in the future. And then you also mentioned Saudi Arabia's program, which has been going on, if I recall, for a fairly good period of time at this point. Some debate has come up about the um, results of the program in Saudi Arabia and the methods they use. If, if I'm correct, they use um, more of a theological rehabilitation program as opposed to maybe an all-around community integration type program. And I was wondering if we could discuss this a bit. So European countries and, and the programs you've just mentioned here in the States, as well as in the UK, uh, they're involving community elements uh, as well as rehabilitation, theology. So what do you think potentially could have better results? More of a theology-based or more of a complete integration community effort? I think that as far as CVE programs go, that the governments that are running them, whether they be uh, pluralistic liberal democracies in the West or whether they be Saudi Arabia, need to treat the theological element of it with a 10-foot pole because if, if it's done wrong, then it opens that CVE program and the individuals in it up to attack is saying the leaders who are doing this are perverting Islam for their own cause, the the imams who are preaching this more moderate version of Islam are just government puppets, which has been messaging that has been successful in mobilizing people to jihad throughout decades. So that's really the downfall of Saudi Arabia's program is, though it's to be expected there, they focused on the theological side, as you had mentioned, but that's not necessarily the great greatest idea. The, the House of Saud already engenders a, a fair deal of discontent from radicals in the Middle East already. So to expect that taking a theological approach there against the people who already have a deep-seated anger towards the Saudi government wasn't really the best approach to take. And we saw that in the results because several of the individuals who went into that program right after leaving went back to Afghanistan to fight, were captured by um, ISAF forces there, and are now in Guantanamo Bay, which is possibly the worst result you can expect out of a CVE program. Agreed. So looking at all of these programs or the idea of these programs as a whole, what type of results have we witnessed or are the full effects of the results yet to be determined? Well, I think that with those that have taken a more full-spectrum approach, such as the Aarhus model in Denmark, results have been positive, though the program was, as expected, faced with a not-in-my-backyard problem with some of the residents when it started. It's been successful in taking individuals who were at risk to go become foreign fighters or at risk of being radicalized within Denmark and given them a purpose. It's secured them job placements, it's made them more uh, civic-oriented within Denmark, it's made them feel like they have a place within society and they have a responsibility to their country to do so. And that's where the divergence is with things like the Saudi program, whereas the Saudi program was this one-size-fits-all curriculum the, the Aarhus model is very much tailored to individuals who went in, and it's 
been getting results as a consequence of it. And that's something that going forward, as I'd mentioned earlier, the ISIS propaganda is very much tailored to the individual when it gets to the point of trying to recruit a person to go over to the caliphate. So an equally individualized approach for CVE programs is necessary. There's also, I think, in the U.S., this rather unhealthy attitude that a 0% failure rate is the only acceptable result when CVE is in question. Each CVE program needs to be evaluated on its merits and its unique situations, but when you have an irreconcilable who may fit into that program or who's referred to that program but they can't really be reached, and I think that's something that CAGE, uh, Moazem Beg's organization over in the UK, has taken a bit of heat for with, is with the irreconcilables in their program. I don't necessarily think that it's the CVE program's fault if they go abroad and become a foreign fighter. Certainly it requires a reassessment of methods, but when you have someone who's determined at the end of the day, it's going to be very hard to stop them with the law enforcement tools at our disposal in Western democracies. Very true. So to sort of bring this talk to a conclusion, you've written this great article, The Myth of the Returned Foreign Fighter, which we will post a link for our listeners so that they can read Colin's article. So to conclude, what is the myth of the returned foreign fighter? I think the myth of the returned foreign fighter is that not necessarily that they won't ever come back because there will be some who've come back. That's already been demonstrated, but I think the myth is that they pose more of a threat than problems within the homeland. I think that the problems within the homeland, because they're necessarily harder to solve, because those individuals are here, they're not an enemy combatant, they have this array of rights about them that law enforcement likes to focus on the problems that they can solve and that they can grab the headlines and say, we've done something, whereas the lone wolf homegrown violent extremist problem and radicalization on the home front is a very difficult problem to solve. It may not always secure a conviction. You may not always be able to get the evidence you want, especially in the, the post Snowden era of blowback and all of this uh, disenchantment with law enforcement and intelligence apparatuses. So the myth is that we should focus more on foreign fighters than we do within our own borders. And I think that if that trend keeps up, then it's going to be very harmful and we risk letting more harmful attackers who are radicalized at home slip through the cracks in the future. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Colin. It's been a pleasure talking about this topic. Well, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed the opportunity to discuss this. I'm sure we'll have a lot more opportunities in the future to discuss this because this is a topic that's not going away. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you.